Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. I got work with middle school and high school students here at Carney E. Free. And I'm so excited to get to speak with you this morning. Um, as Adrian said, I do get to also lead the venue. And the venue was created to help people go from being lost in a crowd to known in community. And so if you're in this room and you feel like, man, this is just a lot of people, we'd love to have you come during the 9-15 service um, most Sunday mornings when it's not snowing outside um, and enjoy a service with us over there and just try it out that we um, really enjoy getting to connect with people in that smaller atmosphere and so I just want to invite you to that. So this morning we're going to continue God's story, our story by talking about the mission of God. But before we do that, I have a question for you. And my question is, how blessed or how much joy do you experience when you see your kids blessing somebody else? And if you don't have kids, how much joy do you find in seeing a stranger bless another stranger? Because my guess is that there's a lot of joy that occurs when that happens, whether it's a son or daughter or a stranger. That for me, my son Liam is little, but when he was one and a half, I would take him to Walmart and I will put him in the cart, and he would turn Walmart into his own personal parade. That no matter where we went, he would wave and he would smile at everybody in Walmart. That if he knew them or didn't know them, it didn't matter to him. He was excited to see them, and he would wave at them, and he would light up the room for people in Walmart, which if you've been to Walmart, it's kind of tough to do. And so people who did not know him would be coming up to him and say, oh, you're the smiliest little boy. How old are you? What's your name? And they were so excited, people that I did not know, that he did not know, coming up to talk to him. And that blessed me as a dad. That I, there was joy in my heart to see Liam bless these people that were in Walmart. And so it's a little tougher in there sometimes. And there, there's just joy on their faces in seeing him smile and wave at them. And just, you know, I love Walmart, so if you work there, we're good. I love it. Um, but... I, I share that with you because the mission of God, there are two blessings. There's a blessing we receive, and then there's a blessing we're called to be. And so I want to pray, and then we're going to talk first about this blessing we receive. Father God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your love and your compassion towards us. And God, I just pray and I ask that you would fill us with your spirit, God. You would fill us with this passion for your mission. That, God, we would not be passive, but instead we would be active, and we would join you on this mission, and we would pick it up, and we would carry what you've entrusted to us. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would use it this morning in our hearts and our lives to shape and mold us, that we become more like your son when we leave this room than we entered it. God, we love you, and we thank you for all that you are to us and for us. pray this in your son's name. Amen. So the mission of God, to start, we really have to go all the way back to the beginning, we have to go back to Genesis, where God creates everything. He creates the galaxies, and he creates the universe, and he creates planets, and the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and oceans, and mountains, and plants, and animals, and people. And the first man and woman he creates is Adam and Eve, and he looks at all that he creates, and he says, it is good. And when he creates Adam and Eve, he creates them to be in relationship with him that they are designed and wired to be in relationship with God. But because God doesn't want them to be prisoners in this creation that he's made, he places a tree in the middle of the garden. And he says, you have one rule on the entire planet. You have one rule. And that's you don't eat from this one tree. He says, if you eat from it, you will die. And so Adam and Eve, they have a choice. Their choice is to remain in a relationship with God 
and be obedient to his command to not eat from this tree, or they can separate from God. They can say, God, I don't trust you. I don't think you have my best interest at heart, and so I'm going to eat from this tree. Well, Satan enters in and begins to tempt Adam and Eve, begins to tell them that God doesn't have your best interest at heart. God doesn't really want what's best for you. He's holding out on you. And if you would eat from this tree, you would find all that God is keeping from you. So you have a choice. Be obedient to God or listen to the enemy. Well, they decide to go their own way. They decide to go and eat this tree. Eat from this tree, not eat the tree. Eat from the tree. And it fractures the world. And sin and pain enter in. And it also fractures the relationship with God. And so these people who were created to be in relationship with God are now separated from God because of their sin. And every single man, woman, and child since that point have been separated from God because of their sin. And so God sets out, and his mission is to make disciples of all nations and peoples through us. That he sets out to restore these people to himself. He sets out to bring them back into relationship with him. And the first thing he does is all throughout the Old Testament, he begins to prepare the way for God, for Jesus to come into the world. He begins to pre prepare the way, and at Christmas we celebrate that God became human in the form of Jesus so that he could suffer and die. So that he could show us the way back to relationship with God, so that we could become disciples and followers of God. So we could be restored, and that relationship that was, we were created for, we can actually enjoy. And so Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life, and then he spends his life loving individuals and showing them how to be obedient to God's commands. He shows them how to live in God's kingdom and to live in relationship with God. And then even though he's never done anything wrong, the government turns against him and they crucify him. They drive nails through his wrists and his feet, and he suffocates and dies on a cross, absorbing God's wrath and punishment for our sin. That Jesus did not carry any sins of his own to the cross, but he carried your sin and my sin. And he died on the cross, paying the price for our sins, and then they buried him in a tomb. But the good news is he did not stay dead, but he came back to life. He rose to life. And he proved that he conquered sin and death. And that is the blessing we receive. That we receive the Son of God sent on our behalf to pay the price that we had earned with our lives. And so now if we place our trust and our faith in Jesus, we can become disciples. But that's the first part of the mission of God. The first part is to make disciples. And the next is for us to go and make disciples. So the blessing we receive is Jesus. But then as Jesus is preparing to go back to heaven, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we see that he is going to give his disciples, his followers, a command. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip open to Matthew 28. If you have a Bible and you're looking for Matthew, it's towards the end, the last three-fourths of the Bible. So if you land in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you just flip over to Matthew. We're going to be at the very end. And in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus is preparing. He's already been resurrected. He's preparing to go back to heaven to be with his heavenly Father. And he's giving his final commands. 
his final instructions to his disciples. And he says to them in verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus starts off by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he says that there is not a single inch of our globe that is not under his authority. So he says, because every single inch belongs to me, I want you as my disciples to go and make more disciples. And I love that he says disciples, that he doesn't say go make converts, but he says disciples. And then he defines that for them by saying in verse 19 or 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That he says a disciple is someone who doesn't just trust and obey, but they're someone who also, sorry, doesn't just trust and believe, but they also obey. That to the best of their ability, that we're never going to be perfect at this, but to the best of our ability, we obey his commands. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we obey. And then if we jump forward to Acts 1, 8, we see, we see the same moment from a different perspective. And in Acts, Luke is writing and he says that Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so as I was preparing for this message, these verses kept coming back to you. As I kept coming back to them, there was this wrestle and tension inside of me. I was trying to figure out why is there so much tension over these verses. And the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized these verses are unacceptable in our society and our culture. That over on this side, we have Jesus who's saying, go and make disciples. But on this side, we have our culture and our society that says faith is a private conviction that you talk about inside the four walls of your home or the four walls of your house, but you don't talk about it anywhere else. And Jesus is saying, no, you go and make disciples everywhere. And so there's this tension in me. Because as I read these verses, I realized that I had been shaped more by my society and my culture when it comes to sharing faith than I was about Jesus and his commands. And so the more that I read these verses, the more I was convicted that I had been shaped by my culture. And so I had to apologize. I had to go to God and say, God, I am sorry, but I have been so shaped by my culture and not by what you have designed and created me to do. And the more that I've thought about it, the more insane our culture is when it comes to this topic of faith. So let me give you an example. I think it's insane that I can tell you where I found a really good hamburger but I can't tell you where I found eternal life. It's insane that I can tell you about my favorite TV show on Thursday night or Friday night or whatever night, but I can't tell you where I found the God who transformed and changed my life. About the God who rescued and redeemed people in our church, who rescued marriages in our church, who rescued families in our church, who broke the chains of addiction in our church. Like, it's insane that I'm supposed to keep that to myself while people suffer and die. Like, this is insane. 
They say, no, just go tell them about a hamburger while they die and sink around you. And so I don't want to be shaped by my culture anymore. I want to be shaped by this command. I want to be shaped by my good God. Because the second thing that created anxiety and tension in me is that I spend so much of my life and my time telling people how much of my identity is found in Christ. That if you were here a couple weeks ago, Adrian spent a whole message talking about how our identity, the majority of it is found in Jesus. That when we place our trust and our faith in him, we are adopted and rescued sons, of daughter, and sons and daughters. That we're made new, we're redeemed, we're empowered with the Holy Spirit, and yet I don't tell anybody about that in the public arena. That I talk about TV shows, I talk about movies and sports, because my culture says that is what is acceptable. Why the people that I sit around suffer and die. And so I don't want my life to look that way anymore. So let me give you an example of what this looks like. It snowed yesterday, if you were aware. And so you're probably outside, shoveling your walk, like me, and your neighbor Frank is out shoveling his walk. And if you have a neighbor Frank, I don't know your neighbor, I'm just making up a name. So Frank, I don't want someone to think, he knows Frank. Frank, that's not what I want you to do. So Frank is out shoveling his walk, you shovel your way over to Frank, you say, Frank, how you doing? And Frank is doing really bad, bad enough that he's going to be honest with you about how he's doing. And so Frank says, I'm not doing very well. You know, I love my kids, but I just feel like I'm a terrible, terrible dad or a terrible parent. That every single day, I tell myself I'm not going to lose my temper. I tell myself I'm not going to be angry at them today. And every single day, I let myself down. That I feel like a failure as a dad. I feel like a failure as a parent. And this is a moment to make a disciple, but what our society says is we just empathize with Frank. What our society says is we look at Frank and we say, Frank, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry you feel that way as a parent, but you know, I, I feel that way too sometimes, Frank. But you know, I, Frank, I'm sure that our parents felt that way too, and we turned out all right, didn't we? And what we give is this like general hope that tomorrow will be better than today even though our experience says that today was the same as yesterday but what if instead we saw that as a moment to share the gospel we saw it as a moment that God was opening the door for us to share with Frank what God's done in our life because my guess is there are many people in this room that as a parent you can relate to Frank but God has worked in your life in such a way that there is growth there so instead of just saying, Frank, I'm sorry, you can say, Frank, I, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I'm sorry that you feel like a failure. And you know, Frank, I know that feeling too. I feel like a failure sometimes as a parent, but can I, I tell you about my relationship with God? Because God has really helped me in a lot of these areas, Frank, because I used to spend so many nights when I would go to bed feeling like I failed. And as I've grown in my relationship with God, I've realized that my identity is not found in how great of a parent I, I am. It's found in my Savior who loved and died for me, who loved me and cared for me. And Frank, I'd love to tell you more about that if you're interested. That in that moment, we're actually offering help to Frank in the place we found help. 
And it might not be parenting, but whatever God has done in your life, I'm sure there are people in your life that God wants to do that same thing if we would be bold enough to just say, can I tell you what God has done in my life in that area? And the good news is God doesn't just tell us to go make disciples and then not give us the tools to do it. But God empowers us with the Holy Spirit. That Back in Acts 1, he says, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit when it comes in you. And then in Acts 2, 1 through 4, it actually comes. It shows up in their life and it transforms them so they can go and share the gospel. And we have that same Holy Spirit in us. And so the mission of God is to make disciples of all people and peoples and nations through us. And so what I'm going to believe is that God is doing in your heart what God did in my heart as I was preparing this. And that you too are saying, I don't want to be shaped by my culture anymore. I want to be shaped by my great and good Savior. And so what I want to do now is I want to pivot and give us some principles as we go on the mission. If we embrace this call to make disciples, if we embrace this command of God to go and make disciples with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and the other parents on our kids' basketball teams and soccer teams, this is what we should expect. The first principle is that we should expect that the mission, we will experience success on the mission. There will be people who say yes. Then we say, can I tell you about Jesus? They'll say, yes, I want to know more about this Jesus. And then, not only will they say, I want to know more, but they'll say, I want to give my life to that same Jesus. Because look around the room. There are people in this room who said yes, which is why we're gathered together. That it worked in our life. If it worked in our life, why can't it work in their life? And so, all throughout the New Testament, what happens is that it starts with these little disciples, and then God sends them out. And then he rescues this guy named the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul becomes one of the greatest missionaries in all of human history. And he goes out all over the Mediterranean planting churches. And he goes by city to city sharing the gospel. And so I want to look at one of his stops in Philippi. So if you turn to Acts 16, verses 13 through 14, we'll look at some of the success he had in Philippi. So it says in verse 13, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So he goes outside the city to where, at this time period, if there wasn't a synagogue for the Jewish people to worship in, they would go outside the city. So he's going to look for God's people that are expecting a Messiah to tell them that the Savior has come. And there's this group out there, and he says to them, he shares the gospel with them, he says, what I said at the beginning, that Jesus Christ has came, he's the one you've been looking for. He's come to rescue and redeem you if you put your trust and your faith in him. And there's this woman, Lydia, who God has been working in her heart and in her life. So what she's been waiting for is for someone to tell her about Jesus. And Paul does, and she says, yes, I want this Jesus in my life. And she becomes a Christian. She becomes a Christ follower. And so there will be people who say yes. That everywhere that Paul went, there were people who said yes. There were people who said no, but there were also people who said yes. That if you go out to make disciples, if you tell your neighbors, there will be people who say yes. That what would our church look like if for the next year we begin to actually do this? 
How many baptisms next Celebration Sunday might there be with people who are saying, I had a friend or a coworker or a neighbor who told me about Jesus and that's what changed my life? How many people whose lives might be transformed the way our lives were transformed if we would share this message that we've been given? If we would pick up this call that God has commanded us to take to go and make disciples? But the good news is it doesn't just work in Philippi, it works everywhere. So if you turn to Revelation 5, verse 9, this is the very end. This is John, he's seeing into the future. He sees the very end when Jesus comes back and he gathers all the believers together. Every man, woman, and child who will place their trust and faith in Jesus. And the elders are gathered around Jesus. And it says in verse 9 of chapter 5, it says, And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. This message is not just successful in Kearney, Nebraska. It is successful in every tribe and people and nation and language. That if it's going to be successful everywhere, it will be successful here as well. And so there will be people In our society, there will be people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your friend group who will say yes, whose lives will be transformed because you took up the call to make a disciple. The second principle that I want to share with you is that we will face opposition on the mission. That if we pick up this call to go and we go, there will be people who oppose us. There will be people who say no. That everywhere Paul went, there were people who said yes, but there are also people who said no thank you. I don't want to hear about Jesus. If we go back to Acts 16, verse 22 through 24, it tells us about the the crowd turning against Paul. It says in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So I want to be really clear that I don't think there's a single person in this room that this kind of opposition is going to happen to. That in Kearney, Nebraska, no one is going to be physically attacked. No one is going to be thrown in prison. That we literally have police officers that are in our church. Like, this isn't going to happen here in our, in our society. What's going to happen is people are going to say no. People are going to say no thank you. People might avoid us. They might think we're odd. But they're not going to physically attack you. But I want you to be prepared that there's going to be some people who don't say yes. So this is how this could look. You're outside, you're shoveling, you talk to Frank. And you, you open up to Frank. You tell him about what God's been doing in your life. You say, Frank, do you want to hear more about this? Frank says, no. I don't want to hear more about this, and he goes inside. And so you go inside, and you sit down, and you begin to think about, man, is there something I should have said differently, or is there a better way I could have presented it? And what I also want you to know is that even when we're opposed, God does something good in the opposition. He brings out something good. And so Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. And so what they do is take that opportunity to convert the jailer to Christianity, to make a disciple of the jailer. So they're in prison. They're singing They're singing hymns and praying and this opportunity comes for them to escape an earthquake happens and they can escape but instead of escaping their concern is more for the jailer than for themselves and they stay and the jailer is so moved by their act of kindness that he says how can I be saved too 
And he puts his trust and faith in Jesus. In verse 34, it says, The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And so this he, the jailer, and his whole household believe because Paul and Silas were opposed and put in his presence. And so Frank goes inside and he says to his wife, he says, you're not going to believe what our neighbor just said to me. He wanted to tell me about Jesus. And then Frank goes and sits down and watches football. And you're in your living room and you're sitting, you're trying to decide what could I have said differently so that Frank would have responded. And while you're sitting there, there's this knock on the door. And you go to the door, and it's Frank's wife. That Frank didn't want to hear the gospel, but Frank's wife does. And she comes inside, and she says that, you know, Frank just told me that, you know, you were trying to tell him about Jesus and how Jesus made a difference as a parent in your life. Would you tell me about that? And you get to share the gospel with Frank's wife. And then Frank's wife comes to trust and faith and Jesus, and so you and your spouse and Frank's wife begin to pray for Frank. Begin to pray that God would open his heart the way that he opened your hearts. And this is how the message goes. The rest of the New Testament is the, the gospel coming from person to person to person. That God entrusts his people with the mission, and then he calls them to go and take the mission. And some of you may be saying, well, that door, that knock has not come on my door. That I shared the gospel with my neighbor and no one's come over to, to ask me to follow up. And that knock might take years. It might take decades to where they hit the lowest of lows. And then there's this little voice that God uses in their, in their head to say, remember when your, your neighbor showed you compassion? When they offered you help? Maybe now you should go ask more about that help. You never know when you might get someone who comes to say, hey, I never forgot that years ago you offered me help and now I want to hear more about it. And so as we go, we should know that we're going to face opposition on the mission. The third principle I want to give you is that all throughout the Bible we are blessed to be a blessing. That all throughout the Bible, when God blesses his people, he does not bless his people just so they can consume the blessing. He blesses his people so they can enjoy it and share it. And so they're blessed so that they can also be a blessing. If we go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, there's this man named Abram, who most of us know as Abraham. God's going to change his name, and we don't have time for that this morning. But Abram is going to become Abraham, and God is blessing him. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So he says, I'm going to give you a great blessing, Abram. But this blessing is not just for you to keep and consume. It's a blessing that's going to go to all the nations. It's going to go to all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abram. And this isn't just an Old Testament idea that if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he tells, says this to them. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, he says, no matter what your trouble, no matter what your trial, God wants to comfort you in it. But part of his reason for comforting you is not just so that you would be comfortable, but it's so that you would be able to comfort the people around you that also are in need of comfort. That when God blesses us with the blessing of Jesus Christ, it's not just for us to keep to ourselves, it's for us to share with the people around us who are in need of Jesus as well. And so we are blessed to be a blessing. That we've been given the blessing of Jesus to give to others. That we shouldn't keep him to ourselves. We shouldn't be so shaped by our culture that we ignore the commands of God, ignore who God created us to be and is making us into. We should trust that the Holy Spirit has empowered us to go. And so here is my challenge for you. That as Adrian said before I came up, we have Christmas Eve services coming up. And Christmas Eve, people are more willing to come to church than other times of the year. And so we do have these invite cards out there that you can grab, and you can invite whoever that Frank is in your life. Because my prayer has been that as I have been talking, whenever I say Frank, God's been putting a different name in your head. That you realize that Frank is actually Bob or Sue or whoever it is. That God's been putting that person on your heart and God has placed you in their life because he wants the gospel to come to them. He wants the life-transforming power to come to them the way it's come to you. And so I'm challenging you to invite them to the Christmas Eve services. But be specific in your invitation. Don't just say, well, we have services at 3 and 4, 30 and 6 and it'd be awesome if you came to one of them. But instead say, hey, my family is going to the 6 o'clock Christmas Eve service It's a tradition we do, and we'd love for you to be a part of our family that night. Are you interested in coming? And then if they say yes, be specific about where you you will meet them. Our church can be intimidating to people. So say, hey, we have this big overhang where people drive underneath. There's all these glass windows. If you come in through that entrance, I'll be waiting for you, and I'll find you right away. And then come early and wait for Frank at the door. So when he comes in, you can say, Frank, I'm so excited you're here. Merry Christmas, welcome to our church. Let me help you around. And then get Frank his candle. And let him sit with you and be by you. And then when the service is over, follow up with Frank. And say, Frank, hey, do you understand everything that happened? Do you have any questions? Do you know what we were, what we were displaying or explaining by lighting those candles? Because there's an opportunity in there to share the gospel. Because that first light that starts on the stage is Jesus Christ coming into the world, that we were a people of darkness. But this light shone in the darkness in Jesus. And then that light came to someone who came to someone who came to someone who came to me. And now I want to share that light with you, Frank. Are you interested in that? Can I tell you more about that? That this is what the mission is, is that this blessing comes to us and we pass it on to somebody else. So I want to leave you with a story, because my guess is that there is at least one or two, but probably a number of people who say, Jordan, this sounds great, and and I've been moved, but I I don't know all the answers to all the questions. That we live in 2018, and people have lots of questions, and I don't have all the answers. And I I want you to know it's good to want to answer questions, but I have two responses. 
My first response is that you probably already know the questions, but you haven't looked at the answer because no one's asked you the question. And so you haven't had a motivation to actually go and find the answer. But if someone asks you that question, then you'll have a motivation because you have a person to give the answer to. But the second thing is that there are so many people, there are so many people who don't need a question answered, they need an invitation to believe. And so I want to tell you about a man named William Lane Craig. This man is a brilliant theologian that every time I've ever heard him talk, if you don't know him, it's not a big deal, just know he's a really, really smart guy. That every time I've heard him talk, I just think, this guy is brilliant. And he spends his time debating against atheists, and he spends his time answering the really big questions that people might have. And so when I first heard him, I was convinced this guy, he must have had like this mountain of paperwork that was full of questions about Christianity. That this guy was too smart to believe. And so he must have went to the previous generations, William Lane Craig, and asked him all of his stack of questions. And then once all of them were answered, he said, okay, I guess I don't have any other reason why not to believe, so I'll believe. But I once heard William Lane Craig share his testimony, and that was not his testimony. His testimony was that he didn't grow up in church, but he grew up around the church. And he met a lot of Christian people who he thought were hypocrites. That he thought they, they spoke a big game, but when they came down to it, he was better than they were. That he was a more kind person, he was a more nice person than they were. And so he wrote off the church. But there was this girl in his high school German class who was always happy, like annoyingly happy. And he couldn't deal with it. And so one day he just said, Sandy, why are you always so happy? You're always happy. What is the deal? Why are you so happy? And she said, well, well, it's because I'm saved. It's because I have a personal relationship with Jesus, and he rescued me, and he loves me. And so that's why I'm so happy. And she could have stopped there, but she didn't. She said, and you know what, Will? He loves you too. And if you would ask him, he'd be part of your life also. And that wrecked William Lane Craig. It bothered him. Because he believed that there was a God, but he believed that God was so big, so transcendent, that he wanted nothing to do with little William Lane Craig. And the fact that someone said, no, he actually does want something to do with you, he couldn't shake it. And so he went home that night, he found a Bible in his house, and began to read the New Testament. He began to read about Jesus. And the more that he read about Jesus, the more he was captivated by this man who was God in human form. And he gave his life to Jesus that night. And ever since then, he's been a defender of the Christian faith, not because he had all his questions answered, but because God had been working in his life and someone was bold enough to say, I will not be shaped by my culture, but I will be shaped by my God. And I will share him when I have the opportunity. And so instead of just saying, well, Bill, I'm happy because I'm happy, she said, I'm happy because I'm saved. I'm happy because I have a relationship with God and you can have that too if you want it. And so we need more Sandys. We need more people who say, I don't want to be shaped by my culture. I want to be shaped by my good, great God who rescued and transformed me. Let me pray. Father God, God, we come to you and we confess that we are scared. That God, we have 
conflicting desires. There is one desire in us to be obedient, and there's another desire that fears man. And God, I pray that as we confess those fears to you, God, that you would make us into bold people. You make us into courageous people who would not be afraid of what our, our neighbors or coworkers might say about us, but instead, we would be convinced that you are going to rescue some of our coworkers. You are going to rescue some of our friends, some of our family members. And God, that there will be no opposition so great that you can't bring something good out of it. So God, we pray and we ask for your boldness. We pray and ask for your courage. And God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that empowers us to go. That we're not left on our own. But God, you give us the mission. And you call us to take it forward. God, I pray that there might be many, many men, women, and children who say, I want to do just that. And that our church might be different next year, that there might be many more neighbors and coworkers and friends and family members in it because we took up this call to go and make disciples. God, we love you and we thank you for your son. We pray this all in his name. Amen.